You wouldn't know that he was a happy boy, would you? Today we want to step back into um, Romans chapter 14. I know John unpacked the first part of Romans 14 with you last week, and so we want to close it out. And we'll be in 14 um, verses 13 into 15 for a little bit, and then we are going to probably wrap up Romans next week. Um, There's a a young man who's been part of Navigators and um, of FCA who I helped prepare a sermon for FCA a couple weeks ago, and I was blown away by him. I was blown away by his handling of the word. I was blown away by um, his depth and his passion for people to understand how discipleship works. And so I think I'm going to have him come share. As we were going through it, uh, I kind of said, hey, you want to come preach this at my church? And he didn't. He, there was a subtle pause. And this is a collegiate athlete who's been in all kinds of pressure, and so it's like I'm just going to hammer you from the start. It'll be awesome. Um, so that's my goal, and then I want to have, we're going to have another sermon in between there to where we're going to talk about um, how to get involved. Like we talked about membership a few months ago, and now I want to just clearly lay out where you can serve in this church. Um, and I think sometimes that gets lost in the shuffle, where I want to serve, I want to get involved, and we say, oh, we'll call you, and then someone doesn't call you, and it just, it becomes chaos. And there's a wall out there that most of you walk right by and probably don't even see that has contact information and stuff, so I want to be real um, intentional and just show you this is how it works. So that's kind of where we're going. So let's pray. We'll jump in. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for the joy today. Um, we could probably just go home after seeing a baptism and someone put their faith and trust in you um, to go into the waters of baptism and obedience, to see a young woman who's willing to take off and go um, and to serve and to share the gospel with all who would listen, and then to see a baby dedicated, Lord. I mean, what a joy-filled day. So I pray, Lord, that your word would bring that same joy, that we would just be on this pattern for the rest of the day. We would see you move in massive ways in our hearts and in our souls. We love you, Jesus. Amen. So Romans chapter 14, you can tell that Paul has, he's laid out from one all the way through, and he's saying, this is what grace looks like. This is what um, faith looks like. This is what a life of Christ looks like. And then he's going to address some issues. So clearly in 14, the church is kind of, they're, they're messing some stuff up. They're forgetting that our, one of our first and only primary calls is to love one another. And so there's a basic issue of preference versus conviction that's kind of going on here. And so we see in 13 this pop back up. So the church is in a bit of a disagreement. Well, we're Christians. What can we do? What shouldn't we do? How should we show grace to each other? How should we, these things function? They're, they're kind of in tension. So Paul's letter is addressing this. He's addressing the potential tension that happens in church. Because, you know, it's just 2,000 years ago, a lot of church tension. We don't have those problems today. That's, it's, I'm thankful we've matured past that. I'm glad. And so he's addressing very specifically how not to cause each other to stumble. That we could be a stumbling block to someone else's faith. And he really lays out the weaker in faith and the stronger in faith. And that both can be a stumbling block to each other but he puts some responsibility on the strong for those who have walked in faith for a while, and that puts kind of a conviction on all of us who have been walking with the Lord for a while, that we have a responsibility, and we should hold that responsibility with care. So Paul starts, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So he's saying that a strong faith can actually be a stumbling block or a detriment to our weaker brothers and sisters. Now, he's not saying 
like strength and muscle or knowledge that you've got a strength of wisdom and you know everything. Or He's not saying that. And he's not saying weakness means that you haven't been in church long enough. He's not saying that you don't read your Bible. He's saying there's a level of faith and strength and wisdom that grows the more that you walk with the Lord. That in our journey of sanctification, we should be stronger in our faith after a decade of walking with the Lord. And where we're stagnant, then that, that shows problems. That's why Paul says, like, you know, you should long for spiritual milk. And then later he says, but there's a time when you should eat meat. There's a time when you stop just drinking on spiritual milk, and it's time to become... He's saying you need to grow up, in a very polite way. You've got to grow up sometime. So he's saying, therefore, in light of 14, 1 to 12, in light of not judging each other, in light of not lording over each other, therefore... We shouldn't pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block. Now, he's not just talking judgment here. He's talking you and mine, our behavior, our actions, our actions in freedom that could cause other people to stumble. Probably one of my, um, not greatest regrets, because I've got a lot of those, but one of the things I didn't understand very early in, in working with youth kids was that I, I didn't understand that the farther along I was in my faith um, didn't necessarily mean that others were in the same place. So I'll never forget, um, I got a copy of the other Bible. Don't Google it, don't Amazon it, it's awful, just stay away. But I had a copy of it. And in it it included the Apocrypha, it included a bunch of Jewish mysticism, it had a lot of the the books of the Bible that weren't added, you, every like once a year, Time Magazine or New York Times goes, oh, the, the hidden gospel of Mary or the gospel of Thomas. And, and so you grab that, and if you're prone to conspiracy theory, which I kind of am, I don't know if I should admit that, I kind of am, and then I'm like, oh, the, why did the church not let me read that? Oh, they're wicked and they're hiding it. And then you actually know the reason. Well, because it didn't state the author. There's only one copy of it. No one read this stuff. It's like someone's private letter they found in a box somewhere and decided that must be scripture. Like the, you don't put the right parameters around it. You can send people all over the place on a dark path. So there's a young man. Um, I've never asked him this, but um, there's a young man who was in our youth group, knew him for three, four years through youth group, strong um, believer, played in the worship band, just a great young man. And in his senior year, he asked me, hey, can I borrow that book? He, they, we had Bible study in our house. They were over at the house. Uh, they had come a lot and a lot. And he goes, can I, can I read that? I've always wanted to read that stuff. I'm like, sure. Well, he never gave it back. And it was probably about four years ago, I get a random message from him. Um, his family moved to South Carolina. Don't really talk to him much. I kind of stalk him a little bit on Facebook, but not a whole lot. And he called me, or he sent a message, and then we talked on the phone. And he's like, hey, I'm, I'm really, I could use some help with some of this stuff. And so I sent him, this with Amazon and Amazon Prime, the joy of that, sent some books straight to his place. And I, I, as I was preparing for this sermon, I'm thinking, I wonder if the questions he was asking are because I gave him a book he wasn't ready for. Like, I read it at a time in my faith where it didn't sway me. I mean, it talks about the whole, the, Adam's first wife, Lilith. If you've studied a little bit, don't go Google it. It's silliness. But like they have all this mythology, like Greek mythology, that things fell from heaven, things happened. There's all these, these ancient Jewish writings that were never included in Scripture, have never been looked at because they never flesh out. 
They don't stand up historical accuracy. They don't stand up to the contextualization. They don't stand up. So you don't need to read them. But it's in there. It's in there. And if you have the strength of faith that this isn't going to sway you, then it's okay. For me, I think it's great for me to know this stuff. So when a college student, a young adult, an adult comes to me and says, have you read this? Yeah, I've read it, but it's foolish because of this, this, this. Oh, I thought the church hit as a conspiracy theory. No, the church got rid of it because it was dumb. Oh, okay. Right? Like you, I, I think I'm in a place, I have a copy of the Quran in my office. It's the English Arabic translation. But I don't know that I would hand that to someone who's a new believer on Wednesday and go on Sunday, would you like to read the Quran? And could totally confuse them. Like there's a time when you should or shouldn't have that kind of stuff. If you're strong and you want to study apologetics, then go for it. But if you're fresh in your faith, you probably ought to avoid it. I put a stumbling block in his way. When I moved to Wyoming, I had a lot of books that I left on my shelf. Like I'm just, they're there, it's research, it's fine. And then I got rid of a whole bookshelf and I had to thin down some books. Like why am I even keeping these? I'm never giving these to anyone. I've read them. I know they're foolish. Why would I have them on my office? Someone comes and looks. Oh, he's got that. Maybe he should, why even have it? So I got rid of them all. That could be, that's my first instance of, I think, being a stumbling block potentially to a young man. If you're strong in your faith, you can open yourself up to those things. If you're kind of weak, you're tender, you're ginger, you don't really get it, like you're still trying to figure things out, then it's probably dangerous for you to spend hours on Wikipedia researching faith. Come talk to me or someone else in the church. Let us help you get through that. Paul continues, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken as of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So he's saying it's not just so clearly there's an argument over food. You have a church in Rome filled with Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles didn't grow up with restrictions on pork or on having dairy with their meat. They didn't grow up with those restrictions. Can you imagine that? Like no gravy over the top of your chicken fried steak? Like, oh, no white gravy with dairy? Oh, that would just be awful, wouldn't it? No chicken and noodles? That would just be a nightmare. But the Gentiles in this church are growing up without these food restrictions. Here's Jewish converts who've grown up their whole lives with food restrictions. They've grown up with their whole lives in these food restrictions. And now they're intermingling with each other in the church, and you've got brand new Christians, Jews, who don't eat pork, who are sitting next to Gentiles who don't have that conviction. And they're starting to get irritated with each other. The Gentiles are saying, what's your problem? You're a Christian now. Mark 8 lays it out. The food restrictions are gone. Why are you so worried? Peter even had a vision. Why, why, come on, get over yourself. Eat a, eat a hamburger. Well, eat a, a pork chop. Come on. Eat a pork chop. They're good. And then the Jews are looking going, I've been a Christian for three weeks. I've been a Christian for three weeks, but I've been a Jew for the last 30 years. And I'm struggling looking over here at these people who are eating pork 
and I don't know that that's okay with God. And I'm looking down on them because they think they're better than me, and it becomes a stumbling block in their own faith. So it'd be like today. If we have some international students that would come into this place, or people from, let's say, India, come into our church. And we knew that we had people from India in our church. And right after this service, we're having a Mexican feast. Probably not going to be chicken tacos, I would say. I would say there'll be some cow has been prepared delicately back there for all of us to eat. How wicked it would be for us to take our brothers and sisters from India who grew up under Hinduism that said, beef is holy, don't eat beef. They've been coming to the church for two or three months. They have professed a faith in Jesus. And we take them back and say, what's your problem? Eat it. You're a Christian now. And they've grown up their whole life with a conviction of beef, that you shouldn't do this. Now, the loving thing to do would, be, would say, hey, we've got some people in our community that don't eat meat. They don't eat beef. They, don't, they won't eat cow because it's still kind of difficult for them. So guess what? We're having chicken burritos. And some of you might grumble and go, oh, it's not as good as ground beef or at least elk meat. It's not as good. And I would say you're probably right. But you need to let that go for the joy and love of the rest of the community. You need to let that go. You have freedom in it. You're free from it. There is no food restriction. Eat the pork chops you want. Eat the beef in an Indian culture you want. That's what. But you should be willing to set those aside for the growth of the community. In Honduras, we um, when we collected clothing, we, two years in a row, we collected a whole shipping container full of clothes and supplies. It shipped over to Honduras, and then we met it. We distributed it amongst the community. And there were a couple restrictions they told us that we couldn't send. One was anything with a Nike symbol or Nike name on it. And at first, like, what? Like, do they, are they just Adidas fans? Like, what's the big, I don't understand, is Honduras anti-Nike? I'm not really, you know, I don't really wear those shoes anyway, but that's because I don't like them. It's not because there's sin. What's the big deal? And it was because in that culture, they taught that wearing name brand clothing, being a, a billboard for a marketing brand, was sinful because that was more money to buy a name brand piece of article, article of clothing and you're robbing your children of food because you want to wear something that's stylish. Now, biblically, I can't hang there. I can't, I can't say it. I, if, when the pastors, we talked to a couple of them, like this isn't, I can't, I can't look you in the face and tell you this is biblically okay. Um, Saul, the guy that was kind of in charge of it, we had a long talk about it. And he's like, but in this culture, this is what happens. Just like cigarettes. They will tell the Hondurans, if you're a smoker, then you're essentially smoking the devil stick, and you're going to go to hell. Now, you will not find that in this book. If you are currently a smoker, it is not wise. Because it can hurt your health. But it's not going to send you to hell. You're not going to find this in the scripture. You won't find it. So it was really hard for me to hear that being taught until I really understood the culture of it, was they're wasting money on cigarettes instead of feeding their family. And so while I was a little, "Mm, this isn't biblical, this really rubs me, I understood that they viewed the cigarette as a stumbling block. They viewed a name brand. So we weren't going to go, by God, we have a whole factory of Nike shirts. Take them or leave it. We listened. We listened. How about alcohol consumption? You won't find in this book an admonition that says if you 
if the devil juice touches your lips, you will go to hell. You won't find that in here. It's not, it's not in here. Jesus' first miracle is turning water into wine. And the guy who's running the party said it was the good stuff. So this isn't, like, you're not going to find a biblical conviction that says all alcohol is evil. What you are going to see is drunkenness is wrong. But you can't put a stumbling block with your freedom in someone else's face. So if you invite someone over to your house, you should probably have a conversation with them before you set a beer in front of them. And if you don't know, then you should probably err on the side of sweet tea is fine for this meal. And I get in a, I'm in a pretty delicate, not delicate, I'm in a weird position sometimes where I've been invited to people's homes for a meal. They invite us over, they want to get to know the pastor, and so the, the question always comes up, and it's like, so Mike, would you like something to drink? Sure, I'd love a drink. Well, do you want, uh, we've got some tea, we've got some lemonade, and we have some beer. <laughs> and it's just kind of like this long, awkward pause. And I'm like, uh... And so clearly I'm being tested in this. Like this is a barrier of, because if someone doesn't have it, and so I don't know the right answer all the time. I really don't. So I usually, when it comes up like that, I'm like, I'd love a beer. Because clearly this person is testing me. To be, all, to be perfectly frank and honest, I crave Diet Mountain Dew more than anything else. It's the first thing I drink in the morning. It's the last thing I drink before I go to bed. That is, like, I could go my whole life and never touch alcohol, but if you took away my diet due, I might have an aneurysm. (laughs) So it's not really an issue for me, but it's clear that it becomes an issue for others. And so there's a test there, and sometimes I don't know if I'm right or not. And you've got to listen to the Holy Spirit. When people come over and we have people over, and I know, I've been around them, I know the story, I know, then everything's fine. But if I don't know, then it's like, I don't know. A few weeks ago, JT and Haley got married. They don't even know I did this. I didn't have a beer with you guys on the reception, or the I didn't have one. I don't think it offended you, did it? I just had this overwhelming feeling like I, if we went out to dinner or they came over to the house, then we could share a beer. But in that moment, I just got done being up here on this stage in front of all these people who I don't necessarily know. I don't know where they're at in their conviction. I don't know. I have no idea. They saw me, the preacher boy, marrying them. And so when I was there, I'm like, you know, I really, there's a, I would really like a cold one. But I don't know if I should. So I had lemonade. I don't know if I was right or wrong. I prayed. I walked in. It was kind of, eh. You know, I, and I said, I'm just going to have some lemonade because I just don't know. I don't want to be a stumbling block in that situation. Am I free? Of course I'm free. It happened in one of our small groups back in West Virginia. All the guys around, it was like a bunch of teenage high school boys hanging out in the garage. We had our crew of people, we all knew each other, and then there was a couple that had been coming about a month and a half, and we didn't know. And so the guy's like, hey Mike, come here for a minute. I walk in the garage, like all the guys are standing in a circle except this one couple. How awkward. <laughs> can, we, can we have a beer? What, what is this? Like I'm not the dad and you're the kid. Like what is happening? Well, we don't know. We know that you want us to make sure. But, and I said, well, does anybody talk to him? I haven't. There's your answer. And, of course, a bold one in the group goes, um, hey, I'll go talk to him. Of course you will, because he really wanted a drink. 
And so they went and talked. We had a, con- had a conversation with husband and wife, and then all of a sudden it's like he comes back in with a thumbs up. <laughs> now, I love the heart behind that because if you, do you know how detrimental it could be if you invite someone to your home, you don't know that they've struggled with alcoholism their whole life. And you're a person in the church, a small group leader, a man or woman of God that's in leadership in the church, and you invite them to your house, and you don't know them well enough to figure out whether or not they have a problem with this or not, and you put it right in front of them, you don't know the kind of stumbling block you're putting in front of them. And Paul is telling us that just because you have the right, just because you have the freedom, just because the biblical conviction isn't on you, To worry about this, you should care for your neighbor more than yourself. And so if God called one of us to go to India, where cows run around free everywhere, and most of us would go, why don't you just shoot one of those and eat it? Would you be willing to give up your love of a juicy, medium-rare filet? Would you be willing to give that up for the faith of those who you're serving? If you're unwilling to give that up for the faith of those you're serving, then you have an immaturity and you're weak and you probably shouldn't be on that mission field. You should have a conviction. If we as a church decided as a church body that we were all going to refrain from drinking because we wanted to be a a mark in the community, that we wanted to say this is a place where we're never going to worry about that, then we would collectively come to that belief. But we would never say... The Bible says never. We would say the Bible has freedom, but we are choosing to say no because we don't want to cause anyone to stumble. Do you see the difference? There's a difference there. And so Paul's trying to get at that we, because eventually people are going to speak of it as evil, that faith is evil because look at these heathens. Look at what they're doing. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God. It's not, this isn't an issue of salvation. If you argue over this, it's not an issue of salvation. You can't look at someone and go, you know, they touched that, they did that, they went there, they have that. Clearly they're not saved. That is not for you to call. We're to be together in a a body of believers for peace and mutual upbuilding. Think of the issue of baptism. We just got done watching Leaf make a line in the sand and be baptized. I'm fairly certain some of you in this room have been baptized and were never dunked or immersed. You were sprinkled. You were baptized as a child. You were baptized maybe when you were 15 or maybe you were 7 or maybe, right? There's different modes of how we've all been baptized. Some churches will choose to fight and divide over it. I don't think that's biblical. To say that our Methodist brothers and sisters up the road are wrong and those people aren't really saved and aren't really baptized. Or to say that our Presbyterian brothers and sisters who are baptized as infants, that's not real. I I don't think that that's proper for us. That's an issue that we should come together in unity. Now, what do I personally believe? We got plenty of water and we happen to have it built into the stage. So in this church, we're going to baptize you. You're going to be dumped. We will do baby dedications, but we're not going to do um, infant baptism. 
I understand pedo-baptism. I understand the belief. I actually think it's kind of beautiful. But that's not what we're going to do. We're going to have believer's baptism, and we're going to have you dumped. If some of you here a few years ago, Herb, who we need to pray for, he's sick. He's in the hospital. He sits over there usually in his wheelchair. He wanted to be baptized. And we got him down onto the bottom step, and he was terrified because his legs don't work very well. He didn't think he was going to come back up. I talked to him about it afterwards, and he really was afraid he was going to drown. So we got him all the way to his knees are wet. And so I picked up a couple handfuls of water, and I poured it on his head, and we baptized him. Now, some people would say, that wasn't real. Poor guy. If only he was really baptized. I'm not doing that. I won't. There are things that we will stand on, that I'll die on my sword over. We have a statement of faith in the church that talks about we believe in God, in Jesus, that you don't earn your salvation, that it's in faith and faith alone, that the Bible is inerrant. It's written by human authors under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It has individual personality and purpose, but it's the Word of God. We believe in the Trinity here. Those are things to die on our swords over, but not some of these others. So we have to understand that we can't be a stumbling block to someone else's faith. Those of us that have a strength in our faith, we can't walk around going, well, you know, I don't have conviction on that sauce. I'm better than you. Can't be that way. How about dress codes? When you go to another country, um, a lot of the traditions of other countries are that women will wear dresses. You'll wear a dress when you go to church. You'll wear, guys will wear slacks. Wearing blue jeans in Uganda was frowned upon, so I didn't even take a pair. Men want a dress, they called it dressing smart, which isn't exactly easy for me a lot, but, you know. You were going to wear khakis or some kind of travel pant, but you didn't wear blue jeans. So I could, in my Christian conviction, in my freedom of Christ, go, that's a ridiculous, unbiblical sentiment. It's just pants. I will wear my blue jeans. How foolish and arrogant is that, to wear the clothes I want to wear in front of a whole group of people wanting to learn about God's word, and it's a distraction because I'm wearing something they see as unfit. And they miss the whole understanding of the word. Should you ladies be forced to wear a dress if you don't wear a dress? Of course not. But if it's going to be a stumbling block to brothers and sisters, shouldn't you have the love for your neighbor to say, I'm free in this, but I'm going to walk in this for you because I love you more than my hatred of dresses? Does that make sense? Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. It's not saying don't believe. It's not saying get rid of your freedom, but you should put your other brother and sister's passion for the Lord before your own freedoms. Probably the the area that this gets fought over, not here. I I haven't sensed it here. I asked the question when I came here. When we were interviewing, um, I... I don't know if Jenna remembers or you remember the video. I asked because it's clearly said on the website there's two services. One is a traditional service and one's a contemporary service. And I just asked the question, so what are the worship wars like? And they're like, there isn't one. And if I'm being honest, in the back of my head, I'm like, yeah, right. (laughs) I've not seen that ever work properly without there being some tension. But she was right. There is no fight here. The first service... We sing out of the hymnals. 
It's a different kind of worship, but I've never heard in the time, the three years I've been here, anyone from the first service say, the way they do music in the second service is devil music. I can't believe they do that. And I've never heard someone from the second service go, they sing out of hymnals? Ugh. I've never heard that. I've never heard that. But how often has that become a dividing place in churches across this country? It's a preference and it's a style. And I shared the first service. If you know the history of how most of those, these hymns that we sing in the first service are written, most of them were written to bar tunes from 250 years ago. There was a papal, a papal cyclical. Pope, the Pope wrote a letter in about 300, about 300 A.D., and it was a complete, it was a, a marker against the half note. That you should only worship to music on the whole note. And if you speed it up, up to a half note, then it's sin and it's wicked and it shouldn't exist. Now we laugh about it now, but this has been going on since the beginning of the church. And we can't fight that fight. Like I, I'll be 40 in a couple months. And I bet that when I go visit my son's family or my daughter's family, if God bless them with families, wherever they're at, I go and visit their church when 20 years from now, I'm probably not going to like the music. Right? But I pray to God that I have the maturity and the strength of faith not to denounce it, to put it down, and say, this maybe isn't for me. I mean, I don't know that you can do any better than David Crowder. That's just my personal belief. And that's what I'll listen to the day I die. But there could be something different. One of the perfect examples of this I ever experienced was a family in West Virginia, the Bartlett's. Um, Jim and Lois Bartlett kind of adopted my children as surrogate grandchildren. Um, they got so bad that when they would walk in the church, they expected quarters from them. It was a little embarrassing. <laughs> Lois didn't know it, but she was preparing me for moving west and the experience, the love, and the joy of green chili. Because she would make me salsa, fresh salsa with ghost peppers in it, and I would eat it after the Sunday night service, and I would eat it, and my wife's making fun of me, like, you're literally crying. Maybe you should stop eating that. No, it's so good. And you just keep eating it, Right? So this couple was, he had just recently retired. She had been retired as a nurse for a couple years. And they came to our evening Sunday night service. It was a lot more rock and roll. Um, if I'm honest, sometimes a little too loud for me, but I like that. They sat in the back row. Um, I don't know why, but it seems like the church there, the evening service was always colder. It might be because I turned the air down because I got hot myself. And it's all about me. But the... The service would often, I don't do that, but the service could be a little chilly. So here's this couple who preferred a different style of music. It was usually the contemporary service in, in the morning. This was a little more rock and roll. They brought a blanket because it was freezing cold, and he had worked in engineering, and he worked in a factory situation, and they brought earplugs every Sunday night. And they would sit in the back row with a blanket on and earplugs on during worship, and I asked them, like, I mean, I, I love this couple. I still love this couple. I get texts from Jim often. And I'm like, hey, is it, like, should I change? Like, I don't want, like, I, I cared enough for them to change things for the entire, the other 150 people that were there. Because I cared so much for them. And they stopped me and go, no, don't change anything. We love the energy in this room. We love the expository style of preaching that's happening. We love seeing people worship no matter what. This might not be our preference, but man, we love to be in worship to the king. All right, I won't change anything. 
Like, I pray I have that kind of maturity because that could have been a stumbling block. I don't like this. I don't like this stuff. This is uh, it's so loud. And they refuse to allow it to, de- to be a detriment to them. But in all honesty, would we be willing to change something big like our style to reach more people? I don't know. I've got my preferences. I pray as a church we would. Now, the next thing isn't me saying we're changing things. I'm not setting you up for that. But would we be willing to change our style, change the way we do things to reach a broader group of people who are far from the Lord? And that's what Paul's trying to get. It's not good. I mean, it is good to eat, to not eat. You can abstain. It's good for those things. But you need to do it for the right reasons. You don't just do it because you're still under the conviction of your conscience from your past. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he proves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. If you're eating out of a lack of faith, then you're leading to sin. Paul's getting at that if you have doubts, then you shouldn't do it. Now this is where it gets really hard, because Paul's trying to drive us to understand we should listen to the Holy Spirit. Everyone's born with a conscience. That's why atheists will try to say, see, people know good from wrong. We're all born with a conscience. It's part of being an image bearer of God. And that's how the Holy Spirit speaks to us, is through our own conscience. And there's times when you have to listen. Should I or shouldn't I? Should I step into this or should I not? Should I eat of this? Should I not? And that's one of the most difficult things for us as Christians to understand, because we would really just like a list. That's what we, we, we are naturally born and have a proclivity towards legalism. Just give me the list. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, I'm good. All right, great. But what happens is that leads us to self, self-based righteousness. I checked all the list. Yeah, but your heart is awful. You're a whitewashed tomb. Inside of you, inside of you is death. Ah, but I followed the list. I checked all the boxes. We're good, right? You have to listen to the Holy Spirit. And that's the one of the most difficult things for us. Because we just want the rule book. The rule book isn't what leads us to faith. I know I've shared this before, but there was a time in um, men's ministry where we went to Buffalo Wild Wings. We had our meeting there. Um, Savannah was very young. Um, nighttime was like chaos in our home. Not chaos, that's not fair. It was just it, like it was good to have all hands on deck for nighttime. And so it was in the fall, and I, Savannah was probably three or four months old at the most. And so it's like, I'll help. Like, it, Buffalo Wild Wings was like two miles from my house. It's no big deal. And so I show up 25 minutes late. And there's three booths. Have you ever been to Buffalo Wild Wings, like those really long, like obnoxious length booths where you fit three or four people in? And so there's all these people sitting, and there's only one spot left on the edge of this one booth, sitting around a bunch of guys I didn't know. I knew these guys, but I didn't know these guys. And so I go to sit down, and Amber asked me as I'm going out the door. Do you think you should drink? Mm, probably not. I mean, I don't know a lot of these guys, so I don't want to be a stumbling block. I'm not going to. So I go and I sit down, and I sit down in the, at the booth, and it was, <laughs> was kind of like when you're on a date, and like your parents walk in the movie theater and sit like right behind you. <laughs> and you're like 15, 16, like, <sighs> great, right? Same thing. I walked in and sat down, and it was like the whole conversation screeched to a halt. And literally, 
two guys had, they were drinking out of beer bottles. They put their hands around their beer bottles like this, like I couldn't see that it was beer. (laughs) And I don't know to this day, I think I followed the Spirit. I had seconds. The waiter walks up and says, what would you like to drink? And I knew that my presence had shut down all conversation that happened in this space. And I had told my wife, and I felt conviction when I left the house, I will not. And in that split second, I have a Coors Light. Conversation happens. I'm still friends with two of them to this day. I don't know. Like, and I'm not tell- I don't know that I was right. Like, please don't hear me say that I was 100% right in what I did. I don't know. I prayed. I asked the Holy Spirit. I led. I could have needed to apologize to that gentleman, to the gentleman around that room. I don't know. And that's what we don't like as a church and as a faith group. We don't like the unknown. So I'm giving you freedom and giving you responsibility. There are weaker people among us that you should be strong for them. And you're going to mess it up. And when you do mess it up, you repent, you ask for forgiveness, and you move on in the relationship. But there are some things that aren't up for conscience. You can't say, well, Mike, I didn't know. I was praying the Holy Spirit, and I felt like I was okay to do that line of Coke. No. That's not okay. But, Mike, I prayed about it. Um, well, are you 21? No, I'm not 21. You can't drink. Like, the Bible's clear. Follow the lay of the land. Don't go, well, you know, I was in church, and I followed my conscience, and I prayed about it. You're not 21. What if I go to Mexico? Go to Mexico, then. That's a pretty expensive beer. Like, you can't do that. There's biblical conviction that's clear. Well, well Mike, I, you know, I, I, we're in love. We're married in God's eyes. Isn't this a-okay? No, it's not. The Bible's clear. It is not okay. So you, it's not everything is a matter of conscience. Not everything is wide open. But in the disputable matters where we don't really know, we lean in the Scripture, we lean in our faith with Christ, and we trust the Holy Spirit. But as soon as you start walking away, if, if your freedom in Christ begins to diminish the inerrancy of Scripture, we're in trouble. We're in serious trouble. You can't take this to the nth degree and say, well, everything's a matter of conscience. Well, for you, that's what you believe. No, it's what the Bible says. You're wrong, the Bible's right. But in areas of conscience, we have to have grace and freedom and peace. And we have to never be a stumbling block to people. Doesn't that terrify you a little bit as a Christian? That a freedom you've been given could be used incorrectly to cause someone to either not come to faith or be diminished in their joy of faith. Like, I know that as a pastor, I'm under the conviction if I mess this word up, I will be held accountable. That terrifies me. Like, if I preach this word incorrectly, if I teach God's word incorrectly, then, oh man. Like, I want to hear, welcome, good and faithful servant. I don't want to hear, you know that time... Because of what you did, this person walked this way. That terrifies me. We should all collectively be a little scared about our freedom. 
And we should be careful who we exhibit those freedoms with. That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians, he doesn't say, hey, no more communion with real wine. What's he say? You've got people in the midst who are getting drunk on communion wine. You don't know your people well enough to know there's people starving in your midst. And so they're drinking all the wine and eating all the bread during communion. You need to know your people. If Paul felt that the conviction was it should stop, he would have ended the practice of communion. That's not what he said. So you've got to know your people. You have to know the people you're doing life with. So the command on us, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. We are called to be strong, protecting the weak. That's what we're called to. And whether you're weak and you start thinking, like you just come to faith. That's where I was at. I just came to faith. Three weeks later, I'm judging all the people who had shown me love and grace for six months. Well, how dare those church people, right? How fast we get there. And then you have people who are great and strong in their freedoms, and they look at everyone else, and they say, gosh, what? why are they so legalistic? They need to chill out. They need to relax. Come have some pork chops. What's your problem? The strong need to protect the weak. That's a clear biblical tenet from beginning to end. Strong in faith, they carry the burdens and they carry their fair share of those who are weak. But that means both of us, the strong and the weak, need to go to the scripture first. You go to the scriptures first. It's not your opinion. It's not what Bob, the preacher you had when you were 10, said. It's not what some TV show said, what some talk show said, what you read on the internet. What does the word of God say? And we share that truth with whoever around, whoever would listen. So we need to be biblically sound and aggressively graceful. We're going to pour grace on anyone who comes near first. And then we'll grow with them as they grow in their conviction. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for a reminder that we have a responsibility to our, our community here. Whether it's in this church or in the community of Laramie or in the state or outside, even to the world, we have a responsibility, Lord, that as we grow in our faith, we don't lord it over people, we don't pour judgment on them, but we also don't put any stumbling blocks in their way. So I think mostly, Lord, I pray that you would help us hear the voice of your spirit more than anything else. That only comes from a consistent life of reading your word, meditating on your word, and then praying in light of your word. That we would seek your face in every situation so we would hear your voice and we would respond properly. I pray that none of us would be stumbling blocks. But I know that's naive that we have been, that I have been. I guarantee there's times I've been a stumbling block to people sitting in this room. And I pray you'll forgive me, Lord. And I pray they would too. That I'm still just a mess, trying to live a life that grows in my own faith and love for you and sharing that with others. And if we could have that kind of honesty in this building and in this community, your name would be made famous at every corner. So help us, Lord. Help us to hear your spirit and help us to live in light 
of all that you've said. We love you. Amen. To pray, then we would love to pray with you. Um, if any of you are wanting to join the church, then we would love to invite you to join this church family. Um, and if any of you have been opened up to the truth of the gospel, we would love to celebrate your new life that began today in Christ.